let's get started this morning. We're going to finish up 1 Kings and go into 2 Kings. It is a rather short uh, handout that I gave you for 2 Kings, so we should be able to get through it maybe. We'll see. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to be here this morning. We know that many are out sick right now, and we just pray for them. We pray for their healing. We pray that their, their bodies would heal quickly, that they might return to us soon, uh, might worship with us again, might praise your name. We pray, Lord, for our class this morning, that we would, we would learn of these um, books, First and Second Kings, and that we would learn how the nations went astray, Israel and, and Judah, and how we ought not to be like them. And we pray, Lord, that we might be a righteous people, that we might be a godly people, forsaking idolatry in our lives and seeking Christ in all things. So we pray that we would learn that lesson this morning and the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, these are the end of the notes for First Kings. Anybody else need handouts? They're back there. Uh, helpful resources. I can't remember if we stopped here last week. Who remembers? I've slept a little bit since then, but not much. First uh, Kings. Helpful resources. These are two commentaries I like. Um, the New American Commentary is always pretty good on the Old Testament. I failed to mention, and they're probably not in your notes last week, Del Ralph Davis, our good friend who's been with us for many commentaries uh, since about Judges. His are a grouping of sermons put together in book form. And I like that. He's just a funny guy from the mountains of Tennessee. And he has these good names. First Kings, The Wisdom and the Folly. So that's a good one if you just wanted to sort of get the grasp of the book as a whole. If you wanted to get into more details, uh, Paul House has a good book, a commentary from the New American Set. Okay, we're talking about the interpretive issues now. Whenever we come to a book of the Bible, it has challenging passages, uh, difficult things that we want to look at. They're not difficult to God. He inspired them to be there. But because we're far removed, in this case, 3,000 years removed, is very hard for us sometimes to figure things out. And so we need to use logical thinking. We need to use other scriptures and try to figure out what the best solution to these are. Because if you're reading through it, some of these will come up in your mind. Now you're probably not going to come up with this one in your mind because it takes some uh, adding and some math. And you know most of us aren't going to chart out every king and how long they reign and what it says in, in the book and then try to figure it out. So this is a problem with First and Second Kings combined. Remember, it's one book in the Hebrew Bible, a, a list of kings after Solomon and how they went astray. And so what is the best way to think about the chronology of all these kings? The data is inaccurate as sort of the liberal view. They would say, look, doesn't really matter. The Bible's not true. No one cares. The Bible writers can make up what they wanted. So of course the numbers aren't going to work out right. And I'll show you a chart of what I'm talking about in a moment. Uh, others would say, the data is accurate because it's the inspired word of God, but we can't solve it. So it's sort of like shrug your shoulders and move on. And then the last one, the data is accurate and it's generally solvable. Of course, we can't figure out exactly how they counted the years, but we can, we can roughly estimate. So here's what I'm talking about here. If you take all the kings and how long they reign, from Rehoboam in Judah all the way down to Zedekiah, you get a total of 394 years. So if you're a math nerd, you're going to like this part right here. Uh, 394 years. If you take the kings of Israel, so that's these guys here, you're going to come up with 241. And so 
210 years in Israel, and then uh, Judah, 345. These are the dates. These are the dates of when the kingdom split, 931. That's when the kingdom split. Israel disappears. They get taken away by Assyria in 722. We don't have enough years. We only have 210 years in Israel. How many kings do we have if we add them all up? 241. I'm not really good at math, but I can tell you that that's not enough years. You need 241 years. The dates only give us 210. Judah, the southern kingdom, starts in 931 as well when the kingdom splits. And it gets taken away. They get taken away to Babylon, destroyed in 586. That's this date right here. That gives us 345 years. Caleb, I know you're a math major. We need 394. We only have 345. Is that going to be enough? Not enough. So what do we do? Do we say the Bible's inaccurate? Do we say, well, it's accurate, but we can't solve that problem? Or do we look for different solutions and how they made up the ancient uh, accounting, the ancient calendar? And I actually have five solutions for you. When put together, I think it's generally solvable. Try to make separate notes for this. I didn't include them, but you can write them down. That's what your handouts are for, to make notes on, draw all over. You can even draw pictures if it helps. But uh, if you want to write these five things down, I'll, I'll try to note them in the, in the side margin here. First of all, separate calendars. So number one, we'll just say separate calendars. These two kingdoms don't have the same calendar. In the north what's called Israel, on the right side, their year starts in Nisan, which happens to be around March and April, depending on how the calendar moves every year. So Israel starts in Nisan, March and April. That's when their new year starts. That's how they would account the years. In Judah, in the south, it starts in Tishri, the, month, uh, the Jewish month Tishri, which is September, October. So don't you think the Accounting is going to get off if you're comparing these two. One of them starts in March. One of them starts in September. That's going to throw some things off. Also, uh, accession and non-accession. So let's put down accession. Hopefully you know how to spell that. Non-accession, uh, year dating. So the accession year, the time from the beginning of the reign until the new year, was not counted in the total reign for dating purposes. So if the king gets made king three-fourths through the year, that year is not counted as one. And that's used in Judah and Israel up until a point. Then the accession year starts being counted in Judah after King Jehoram. So that's going to really throw things off in the calendar if you're following me. So let me show you. Let's see, where's Jehoram in Judah? Right here. Everything in this blue box... When the king becomes king, that year is not counted. But this right here, when the king becomes king, that first year is counted, even though it's mostly up, you know, maybe a month left. The one month would count as one year. So that's going to throw numbers off as well. Uh, but that's how they do their calendar. You know, we don't check with China and ask them, hey, what's your calendar? Let's try to match ours to yours so everything works out perfectly. We do our calendar, they do theirs. And then businesses try to figure out how to match it up. But we don't have to as a nation. Also, number three, national dating. Each country uses its dating system to determine the reigns of the other nation. So 
let's say we have America and we have Canada. Let's say Canada uses a different calendar. Then we would have a different year that their, what do they have, prime minister? When their prime minister starts, and they would have their own year that their prime minister starts. So the, the recording is different depending on which kingdom, and it's different for the other kingdom as they're talking and writing about it. Also, number four, this is a big one, co-regencies. Co-regencies. What's a regency? That's a reign. Co-regency means there's two kings on the same throne. When does that happen? When the son is going to become king. So the way that the father passes his authority to the son is by making him king at the same time. You don't wait till the dad dies and then there's this big rebellion and everyone attacks the new king because they don't like him. That's what happened with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So how do you deal with that? Well, you try to deal with it by making your son the king while you're still king, passing some authority that way. So that's number four. Number five is just dual dating. And this is an overlapping reign, a length of a reign, and synchronism different. So let's say one king rules six months into the year and dies, and then the next king starts and he rules six months. They both get to count that year as part of their reign. So we have five different things that can throw off these dates. Once we start to use those, we can see how we might be able to fit those in because there's just a lot of overlapping. There's just a lot of overlapping. So suddenly, math becomes possible because we can fit 394 into 345. Why? Because there's overlapping. There's different calendar systems. The Bible, of course, is inerrant. It's not making an error even in math here. We just don't know exactly how they, cal- how they did their calendar and dating to the point where we could figure it out. But it's generally solvable if we consider those five solutions. Okay, so what's my solution? The data is accurate. Of course, it's the Bible. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. And it's generally solvable. It's not a math problem I'd give my kids to try to figure out. But it's generally solvable based on those five things I just told you. That's why history is important there. Because liberals will just attack the scriptures here and say, can't be, the Bible can't be true. Numbers don't add up. Well, let's, let's look at history. How did they account for the year? What were the calendars? North and south were different. Those types of things. Okay, something you're probably more likely to come across as you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings. What are these high places? The high places are where false gods were worshipped. Pagan gods. Why did they happen? Why did they come into Israel? Who really allowed it to happen? The wisest man before Jesus, Solomon. The wisest when it came to judging his people, not the wisest when it came to marriage. How many wives did he have? And concubines? Over a thousand. He thought he was a really smart guy. He could take care of a thousand women. And then most of the wives, the official royal wives, came from other countries. And what did they want to bring in? Well, they want to bring in their worship. You know, that's why it says in the Bible in the New Testament that a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. What does a non-Christian want to do today? They're going to bring in their ungodliness. They're going to bring in their worship of whatever they worship themselves into the marriage. Well, the same in the Old Testament. God said, don't marry outside of Israel. And what did they do? Well, Solomon led the way. He said, that's no big deal. I'm a pretty smart guy. I can figure it out. I can make sure all a thousand wives are happy and let them worship their own gods. We'll just set up a little shrine on the hill out here. They can go worship. Nobody's going to notice. What happens? 
not long before Solomon goes. He's worshiping with them. And the people look and say, well, there goes the king. Not, not a big deal. I could use a little extra money this month. I could use a little uh, extra blessing. I could use a, another child. We haven't been able to have a child for a while. So let me go up there and practice these pagan rituals. And maybe, you know, who knows? God will work through them, you know? It's kind of like when you're talking about false churches and false teachers and somebody says, God can work through them too. Well, God's commanded us not to do such things, not to listen to such things and not to practice such things. So we have to ask ourselves, all of these people of God, the nation of God's people, are going up to worship. Is that excusable or not? So our two options. I think there's only two, right? Do I have a third one? No, two. Is this excusable? As long as it's not one of the Canaanite gods, is that okay until the temple gets built? Is it okay until the temple gets built? Is it okay that they bring in other gods to worship until God's temple officially gets built? Because it takes some years for Solomon to build it. Or is it inexcusable both before and after the temple gets built? This is not a hard one, right? What do you guys think? Not excusable, right? What am I going to choose? Debbie says B. Deuteronomy 12. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12. This has already been covered by God and the law. So turn to Deuteronomy 12, verse 2. Not only is it covered that it should not happen, but Moses prophesies that it will happen even though he's commanded them not to. Deuteronomy 12, 2. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispose serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. So when you go into the land, Moses is telling them, this is before they're coming into the land, before Joshua leads the army in, you are going to destroy when you get in there all these places. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their ashram with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods, obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. So even before the temple's built, Moses is telling them, God is telling them through Moses not to worship these false gods. Tear down everything. Yes, God will set up his own place of worship, but don't worship at these other places. There you shall bring your burnt offerings. And he goes on to talk about how they're to come to the temple. Verse 8, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I commanded you. So there's only one place to worship. There's no other place. Verse 13, Be careful that you do not offer burnt offerings in every cultic. My translation says cultic in italics. I don't know what other translations say, but the idea here is every other place. Don't offer burnt offerings at other places, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I command you. See, what they were doing during the time of Solomon and after is they said, well, we're really worshiping the true God. We're just going up there where the pagans worship because it's a holy place. It's sort of like when Aaron made the golden calf. What did he say? 
here's another God, come worship this other God. That's not what he said. Behold, the God who brought you out of Egypt. Which is sort of like who today that says, well, we're not worshiping the statues and the pictures, we're worshiping through them, the true God. Who does that? The Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics with statues and items and different crucifixes and stuff. They're, they're focusing their, their worship, but they say it's through them. It's through the saints. Well, God says, no, you only do it as he commands. If he doesn't command, then you don't do it that way. Worship's important. So what am I going to choose? Um, let's look at 2 Kings 17.9. You know I'm going to choose B, but the sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. Every place had a high place. They just did whatever they wanted. They had a temple, too. They already had a temple by 2 Kings 17. They still did what they wanted because it wasn't enough. People today, even within Christianity, don't think the Bible's enough. They don't think what the Scriptures teach us is enough. We have to have something else. Well, that was their thinking then. The temple's not enough. God's word isn't enough. God's priests aren't enough. We've got to go outside of that and get something else. The real answer is B there. It's inexcusable both before and after the building of the temple. In fact, that's going to be the problem with the bad kings. The bad kings and both of these divided kingdoms don't destroy the high places. God tells each king to do it and they don't do it. None of them do in the north. Most of them don't in the south. Okay, last issue with... First Kings, Solomon, and the Abrahamic Covenant. So let's get, look at First Kings 4. So if you've been with us from the beginning, or in some of my other classes on this, you might be familiar with the Abrahamic Covenant. What is it? Who remembers the Abrahamic Covenant? What is it? That God will bless Abraham, give him a people, a land, and the other families, the Gentiles, we would say, will be blessed through him. So the land was important. Later in Genesis 15, 18, God will specify which land and what the extent of it is. So the question is, did Solomon fulfill that? Did he rule over that piece of land? Is the Abrahamic covenant done? Are we not to look forward to a future kingdom where the Messiah will set up a worldwide kingdom, but it will be focused on the land which God we focus in, I should say. His capital will be in the land which God promised to Abraham. So Solomon reigns over quite a bit. First Kings 4.20 Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. That's language that God said to Abram. Abram then Abraham. I will make your, your seed, your descendants, as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky, so numerous. Abraham doesn't believe it because he doesn't even have one son at that point. How's that going to happen? I don't even have a son. How, how am I going to grow into this great nation? Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So the solutions are, A, Solomon's reign fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant, or B, it did not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So let's go back and look at it in Genesis 15. Hold your spot there in 1 Kings. Genesis 15, 18. God's going to give us 
the, the borders of the land. It's, it's really a simple comparison. But a lot of people think Solomon fulfilled it or David. Some, some say David fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. That, that Israel is not going to have these promises fulfilled in the future. Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, to the river Euphrates. And then he goes and lists all these tribes where they're currently at, that he will rule over that land and possess it for Israel. The Canaanite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite. Well, one thing is, during Solomon's time, some of these tribes are still existing. Also, going back to 1 Kings, he says, Now Solomon ruled over all of the kingdoms. Is that his kingdom? One kingdom? Or is he ruling over his plus client kingdoms around? That's what it's indicating. He made them submit to him, but the Jewish people weren't living in those areas. The Canaanites and the Hittites and all of these had not been fully pushed out. In fact, when the kingdom divides after Solomon, suddenly who pops up again? Philistines pop up. Moabites pop up. They were always there. They were just submissive while Solomon had this great army and great wealth. So I think I have a map here for you. Well, that's a solution B. Solomon's reign did not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. I thought I had a map. Nope. Yeah, I did if I go back here. Let's look at Numbers 34.6 real quick. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea. So when we read Genesis 15, that gives us the, the top and the bottom border. Now here's the western border, the great sea. That is the coastline. This shall be your west border. So I think I have some maps. Let's go back here. Did I pass it? There it is. All right. Here's Solomon's kingdom on the left. Solomon's kingdom's on the left. So the green is what he actually ruled over. That's where the Israelites lived. The gray at the top is a kingdom, Hamath, that submitted to Solomon. Now, what was the western border? The Great Sea. What's the Great Sea? The Mediterranean Sea. Does... Solomon's kingdom extend from the Euphrates up and then this might be the great river of Egypt if we consider that that brook that runs there. Well, what's the problem that we have here? See this piece right here? Wealthy cities like Tyre and Sidon. Those are supposed to be included in the Abrahamic covenant and they never were. In fact, uh, Solomon gets wood, doesn't he, from that region to build the temple. The king of Tyre uh, Hiram gives him wood. It's his friend. But that's not his kingdom. So he doesn't rule over that. This here is not the Israelites' land. They can't just go live there. It's a, another kingdom that submits. And then not to mention, we have all of this area up in here too that is not part of Solomon's kingdom, which was promised to Abraham. So no, he did not fulfill that covenant which means it's never been fulfilled fully, which means what? If God's going to keep his promises, it's yet to come. Now, we're not to think it's to come in a worldly way like right now. Uh, I think the Bible teaches us it's to come when the Messiah sets up his kingdom over the earth. 
Okay, the portrayal of Solomon. This is an interesting question. Have you ever asked yourself, is Solomon even saved? Is Solomon a true follower of God? He marries all these women. That's, a diso- that's disobeying God's law. He, he brings these high places in and sets them up, totally misleading the nation. What's the number one reason God's going to take them away to Assyria and Babylon? The number one sin that the prophets talk about? Idolatry. Who started that? Well, it was, it was in their hearts already. They, they desired to sin, but Solomon made the pathway there. He, he was the leader, and he'll be, of course, held accountable for that as the leader. So, is he a flawed lover? This is not lover of women, of course. He was very flawed in that way, but a flawed lover of God, Yahweh, and a follower of Yahweh. Was he a, did he love God and did he follow God? But he just had flaws. He just had sins like us, like his father David. Was he an apostate who turned away So at, in the beginning? Um, he, he, he started off seeming like he was, but he actually turned out to not be a, a true follower. Let's look at 1 Kings 11, 9. This doesn't sound very good here. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. So there it seems like his heart was turned away. It doesn't say permanently, but at least from this text, Solomon had turned away at this time. He turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. It's not like God appears to every. I know people say God appears to them today, but he doesn't. Even in the Bible, it's not like God appears to everyone. And he appeared twice to Solomon, and Solomon still turns away from him. And then in verse 10, And God had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he, Solomon, did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So that doesn't sound very good, does it? And then C would just be kind of like, I'm not going to make a decision. The record is inconclusive. That's the scholarly way, right? You just say, the record is inconclusive. Which means I don't really want to decide. Don't ask me that question. But uh, Solomon is an imperfect type of Christ. Yeah, I, I, don't, uh, I don't like that answer, so I'll just tell you right now. Those two don't even go together. If the record's inconclusive, then how can anyone say he's a type of Christ? But that, that is one of the views out there that you would read in commentary. So I think the question is, is he an apostate, or is he truly saved with many flaws, many sins? Let's go back and look at some of these verses here. Um, we're already in chapter 11. So let's go back to verse 4. This is before it says God was angry at him. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. So it's the wives who were doing it. And it just says, holy. Does this mean that he was devoted to God, but he could not resist the temptations that his wives brought to him? And so he was his allegiance was split. Uh, continuing on here. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, that's the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Going back to First Kings 3 and verse 3. Now Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of his father David. Except, he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. 
So to me, that's a, that's a key verse in this argument. He did follow the Lord, except he sinned in this way. That doesn't mean it's excusable, like it's not important, but it means he did desire to follow God, but he stumbled big time. He stumbled big time. So I would choose A. I don't know if I have it highlighted here. I don't, but I would choose A with some reservation. I don't think First and Second Kings is super clear on it. But if Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, which I think he did, and we'll get to that when we get to Ecclesiastes, then that's a letter in his old age, and he calls himself the preacher there. He, basically, he says, I want to preach a message to you now that I'm old, now that I've seen all these things. And what's the final lesson? After all that I've seen, I've tried, I've tried all these things, all these women, all this money, all this fame. What's the final lesson in Ecclesiastes? Fear God and obey his commandments. And he's talking to God's people. He's saying, if you're one of God's people, fear him and obey his commandments. And I think he's saying, I didn't do that. I chased after all these other things. And in the end, I learned my lesson. Vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless unless you have God and you're following him and obeying his commandments, right? So we'll get to Ecclesiastes. But I think with 3.3 and Solomon being the author of Ecclesiastes, I have hope for him. I have hope for him. But wow, it, it would be hard for us today if we saw a Christian worshiping a false god and for us to say that person's not an apostate. They're not turned away. They're just stumbling. That would be hard for us today. But I'm going with indications in the Bible here on Solomon. Any questions on First Kings? You got it all figured out, huh? All right, let's move to Second Kings. I thought we might finish it today, but we'll see. Spend a little more time on those interpretive issues. Second Kings, your notes probably say, introduction, look at First Kings, because it's one book in the Hebrew Bible. They did not see it as a second book. Why is it split? The scroll's not long enough to put all of it on there. Same thing with Samuel. Same thing with Chronicles. In the Hebrew Bible, it's just Chronicles, it's just Kings, it's just Samuel. But when it gets translated into the Greek Septuagint, that's the LXX Septuagint, it, it gets divided up because they have two scrolls here that they're translating. This is the first part, we'll call that one First Kings in our mind, and Second Kings. They say Third and Fourth Kingdoms. And then the Vulgate, this is the Roman Catholic Bible today, that's the official one. And it's translated now into English after, I think it's Vatican II, they allowed, maybe it's Vatican I, English translation is no longer prohibited after killing all those people who did translate it in the Reformation. But if you're talking to your Roman Catholic friend or family member and you're trying to point out a verse in one of these books, what are you going to say? You're going to say, go to Second Kings? No, because in their Bible, even their English translation, it's Fourth Kings. Second Kings is Fourth Kings. First Kings is third Kings. Confusing? First Samuel in the Roman Catholic Bible is what? First Kings, second Samuel is second Kings. So if it ever comes up, just be aware of it. Okay, so what's the theme? What's the theme? So the theme of first Kings was Solomon's reign and then the division of the kingdom. Theme of this, Israel and Judah. Now the two divided kingdoms are both going to fall. And God is going to judge them for their sin. He's going to judge Israel, that's the north. 
He's going to judge Judah for their disobedience as well. They're both going to go into captivity. He's going to take them away out of the land. They no longer get that promise. Moses had said with the Mosaic covenant, the law that God gave him, if you obey, then you'll stay in the land. If you disobey, what? All of it's going to be taken away. You'll be taken away into captivity. Doesn't mean the Abrahamic covenant's gone. That's an everlasting covenant. But the Mosaic one was based on obedience. That's why we're not under the Mosaic as Christians. We're not under the Mosaic as Christians. It was based on Israelites' obedience or disobedience, though, the Mosaic covenant. So in chapter 17 of this book, 2 Kings, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Just remember, when the kingdom split, Israel is the north. Before the kingdom split, Israel is what? The whole kingdom. David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Solomon's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. When it splits, Solomon's line, David's line, stays in the south, that's Judah, and the north is called Israel. Why? Probably because it makes up 10 of the tribes. So if you have 10 out of 12, you get to keep the name, I guess, is how it goes. You get to keep the name of your people. The south is mostly Judah. Most of the people in the south come from Judah with a little bit of Benjamin. That makes up the 12th tribe there. So chapter 17, the Assyrians come and they take away everyone in the north. They take them away. They displace them all over the Assyrian empire. And then they bring other people into the northern area. So why are there... Samaritans in Jesus' day because the Assyrians had brought pagans in there and put them all around that area and then they took on the practices of the Jews who lived next to them and they made their own worship. You've probably heard Samaritans were mixed. There's actually no evidence of that and if you read First and Second Kings or Second Kings it says the, the, the emperor or the ruler of Assyria brought in these pagan tribes and then they set up their own priests and their own place of worship. So they're not really mixed. Of course people would have filtered in from the south and maybe intermarried. But for the most part these are from the pagan nations. So that's the north. Then the book ends in chapter 25. We have the southern kingdom. Which one's on average the more godly? It's going to be the southern one because of the promises made to David and Solomon. They're going to have more good kings in that line, but even they are going to stumble. Even they are going to fall. And so we have Babylon coming in in 586 B.C., completely destroying the city, the temple, taking away Daniel, who writes the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and they take the whole nation and put them, just almost everybody, in Babylon, leaving the south just a wasteland. But later, under Ezra, and Nehemiah, the people get to come back. After 70 years in captivity, they will come back. And we'll look at that when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Many of the prophets prophesied during these times where the northern kingdom was about to be taken away and the southern kingdom. So I think of Jeremiah in the south. He was always telling them, if you don't obey God, this is what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to come. They hated his prophecy. They threw him in prison. They tried to kill him. That's what Jesus said they always do to God's prophets. So why is it here? What's the purpose? It's to show us the human monarchy. Even the Davidic house. God had promised there would always be somebody on 
the throne for David. But even the Davidic house, even David's own family, failed to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. What's Yahweh? It's this Hebrew. Hebrew for, uh, it goes like this. How is it, Thomas? Just finished taking Hebrew, right? Yahweh is the, the personal name of God in the Old Testament. It doesn't translate our Bibles say Lord in all caps. This is a personal uh, name. So they failed to follow God with the result that Israel and Judah were taken from the land. And this fulfills God's prophecy. Moses said this would happen. Moses told them that this would happen in Deuteronomy. He said, one of these days, you're going to turn away from the Lord. He's going to remove you from the land. Then he's going to bring you back. They already knew in advance and they still did it. So what's a good outline for the book? Well, it's pretty simple. First 17 chapters talk about the, the divided kingdoms. What's happening continues with these line of kings in north and south, going back and forth. And then at the end of 17, Israel falls. The north falls. So in that process, we have Elijah in the north. And uh, Elisha as well. I think this B should probably be Elisha. And then... Uh, from Jehu to the fall of Israel finishes up section 1 of the book. Section 2. Now, there is no more north. All the focus shifts on the south, the kingdom of Judah. So we see a, a few more things mentioned about their kings. The reign of Hezekiah. He's a good king. Finally, we have a good king. But then there are two evil kings who follow him. His own son and grandson. Then we have the reign of Josiah. Finally, a really good king. He's that one we read about last week who goes and destroys all the high places. And not only that, he, he kills all the pagan priests. And not only that, he digs up the bones of all the pagan priests and burns them on those false altars and destroys everything. Even up into the north as far as he can get up there. Um, then we have the fall in 586 B.C. mentioned at the very end. So let's look at, let's just look at some of these. Let's look at the, um, the fall in 9-11 through 17. What is one thing you've learned about God and sin in the Old Testament? Whether it's in this class or Frank's sermon a few weeks ago. What does God do when you continue in sin? Does he say no big deal? Judgment. Judgment. Not something a lot of folks want to talk about today in Christianity even. It's supposed to be health, wealth, and prosperity. It's supposed to be all the good things that we want out of life. Sin's not really mentioned a lot. Most of the Old Testament is just one ongoing story of Israel's sin and how God punishes them and how God then restores them by His grace when they repent, when they turn back to Him. This happens all the way through, doesn't it? From Adam and Eve until the end of the Old Testament. They can't do it. God continues to restore them when they repent, though, and promise them a coming Messiah. All right, 9-11. Now Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know very well the man and his talk. They said, It is a lie. So he's talking about this prophecy that they're going to lose the battle and everything will be lost. 
And Jehu says, it is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. Am I on the right one? Yeah, go down to... Yeah, let's keep reading. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. So there's this conspiracy going on in south. Um, I don't think I have the right reference there. That's not going to be right. Where does it fall? 17. You guys have a fuller outline than what I gave you there? Because we're going to chapter 17, and the last one I have is chapter 9. So skip over to 17. Missed part of the outline there. Type too fast. Okay. Let's just do 1721. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, then made Jeroboam the son of Nebat the king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away. So this is looking back to what happened right after Solomon died. His son reigns. The north splits off, though. And Jeroboam's the first king of the north. God set all this up in his providence. The sons of Israel, the north, walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, their first king, which he did. He set up up idolatrous places of worship. They did not depart from those sinful ways until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. So even until the writer, or the writer's day, which is long after these events, he's summarizing. You'll have to go back and read 1 through 17 to get the whole picture, but he's summarizing and saying they were taken away into exile because of their sin of idolatry. They followed in the way of the first king of the north, Jeroboam. Even though God had picked Jeroboam, even though God had said he was going to be king, he got prideful and went his own way. And the north led him into idolatry. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, from Sepharvim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria. This is the northern kingdom, in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. That's the Samaritans of Jesus' day. Where do they come from? Right here, 2 Kings 17. These are pagans put into the land of Israel by the Assyrian king. And it says, at the beginning, this is kind of funny, at the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. So these pagans show up, and they don't know anything about the true God. They don't care what they hear, even when they hear it. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. How would you like to be put somewhere by the ruler of the kingdom, and suddenly lions are attacking you, Simply because you don't know their God. So you better figure things out. So they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile, these are the Jews from the north, and put in the cities uh, that were originally in the cities of Samaria, do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know their custom of the God of the land. The king of Assyria commanded saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, let him go, and live there. So one of the priests goes back, and he's going to teach these pagans how to worship God. It's not very long, though, for they set up their whole system of 
sacrifices. And even to this day, they still go up to their holy mountain in Samaria, and you can watch them. They have videos where they slit the lamb's throat, and they go through the sacrifices that they think they should do that are similar to the ones that used to happen in the temple. Let's look at the end here. Uh, I think this one's right. 2417, the end of Judah. So we have Judah now taken away. That's the start in 2410. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem. So we're going to find Nebuchadnezzar in a later book. Where are we going to find him? In the book of Daniel. He's in the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of his servants. I think Nebuchadnezzar gets saved in the book of Daniel, but right now he's not. He's coming up to Bab- uh, from Babylon. He's already been ruling over Israel. He's, or Judah, sorry. He's already been ruling over Judah. He conquered them, but they rebel again, and now he's coming back for the final time. And it says, uh, the, the king comes up, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother, his servants, his captains, his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord. Just as the Lord had said, just as the Lord had said would happen. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem, all the captains, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Not very many people left at this time anyway, but of the 10,000 best ones, he takes with him. Everyone else that's left is poor. It's just a wasteland until Ezra comes back in Nehemiah. So he led Jehoiachim away into exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother, the king's wives. Verse 16, all the men of valor. There were 7,000 of those. All the craftsmen, the smiths, 1,000 of those. All strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought to exile in Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, Mataniah, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sorry. So it was, I got a little off off timeline there, but it was um, Jehoiachin was the first king that gets sieged. He comes out peacefully, is taken away. Then in his place, Zedekiah reigns. Zedekiah rebels. Chapter 25, they come back and destroy everything. So the first time Nebuchadnezzar comes, he takes everything away, the people, there's not much left. But of those who are left, including Jeremiah and others, they decide they're going to do another rebellion. And so they lock the gate, Babylon comes back, and they destroy everything. So that is the end of 2 Kings. So there again was the two kingdoms. We have Solomon on the left, the north and north, northern Israel, southern Judah on the right. You see, suddenly, the Philistines are back in play here. So are the Moabites, the Ammonites. Syria has its own, you know, Solomon did not fulfill fully the Abrahamic covenant. Here's that list last week that I showed you of good and bad kings. Bad is red. Neutral's brown, which means they did some good, some bad. And the good kings are blue. This is just mainly for second kings. 
So we're looking at Second Kings today. Starts right here. So everything under there. We don't have very many good kings. There's a lot of red, isn't there? What makes them bad? They did not destroy the high places. They let the people worship. They worship there often. And they let the nation and the people do injustice to one another. That was the second sin. Number one was idolatry. Number two, injustice. So Hezekiah here, good king. Josiah, good king. Key chapters. Elijah's taken into heaven. Prophet in the north, Elijah. Uh, chapter 2. Chapter 4, Elisha's miracle for the widow. Remember, he turns it, uh, produces oil for her. Then Naaman's healed. And then Gehazi's greed. Uh, Elisha thwarts Syria. And then chapter 17, Israel falls. We won't have time to read all of those. 18, Sennacherib invades Judah. It's not successful. Uh, 22 and 23, Josiah's king. That That is a very interesting story. You want to make sure when you're reading through to slow down and soak in the, the good one little two chapters, I guess, that are that are a good king's rule and see what he does. And then in 24, 25, the fall of Judah to Babylon. So let's look at a few key passages. 418. <clears throat> Second Kings four, eighteen to twenty-eight. So this is a woman, a Shunammite woman. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, uh, to the reapers. He said to his father, "My head, my head!" And he said to his servant, "Carry him to his mother." When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him. So the man of God, who's that? That's, that's word for prophet. And he went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. So Elisha had a bedroom there that he stayed in when he was up in that area. And uh, she puts the boy on the bed and then she goes and uh, verse 23, he said, Why don't we go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. And she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down. And hurry up, in other words. So she went, came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. That's where the him and the prophets were encamped. When the man of God saw her at the distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is the Shunammite. So Elisha sees him. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So he's not even aware of what happened. And she said, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? So she'd been blessed with a son, She'd been blessed with God's uh, gift of a child. And now she's upset, rightly, you know, not, not so much at God, but at the prophet. He's died. And so they go and Elisha eventually raises him from the dead. Showing, 
couple of things. God's power, God's power through his designated prophet, but also what? That God cares for people even outside of Israel, doesn't he? He cares for people, even the Shunammites. Go to 6, 1 through 7. This will be the last one we look at this morning. The axe head. You seen any axe heads floating, John, for us? Supposedly we have prophets today. Have you seen them floating in the axe heads? It's got to be a plastic one, right? It's got to be a plastic one. 6, uh, 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha. So there's a group of people called the sons of the prophets. These are prophets. Behold now, Elisha is their leader. Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. There's too many prophets. They need, to, they need to expand. So he said, go. Then one said, please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. They're going to build shelters. But as one was falling, uh, felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. And the man of God said, that's Elisha, where did it fall? And then he showed him the place. He cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. He said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it up. So this is truly God's prophet. Listen to him. There's a sign. What are signs for in the Bible? Signs, miracles, and wonders. What are they for? Authenticate the messenger, right? Which then authenticates the message. So the apostles had to produce in the New Testament signs, wonders, miracles. The prophets of old signs, wonders, and miracles. It's a small thing. We would just probably let the axe go, but it would have been very expensive. Metal, iron, not cheap back then. And so we've got to get this thing and return it to the guy we borrowed it from. It would not look good for God's prophets to have stolen something and lost, or to have borrowed something and then lost it. That's like stealing. And in that, God uses it to prove the authority of Elisha. Because everyone loved Elijah But who's this young guy, Elisha? All right, next week, we'll start with key people here. And uh, we'll go into one interpretive issue, the double portion of your spirit. Who's heard of the double portion today? A few people. Benny Hinn, anybody know Benny Hinn? He gives people the double portion of the Holy Spirit. So we need to look, is that what this is talking about? Or what does it mean? So there's a bunch of choices there. So don't miss next week. We'll start with that. And then um, we're going to move on to the next book, First Chronicles. I don't even know if we'll get done with First Chronicles next week. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time of study this morning. I pray that it's been a, a, a good overview. It, yes, it's been brief, Lord, but help us to think about Scripture, love the Scriptures, and continue to read it. In Jesus' name, amen.